This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today I have one of my good friends, uh, Pastor Bruce. Bruce, could you introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, uh, my name is Bruce Guckelberg. And uh, I've been a pastor for 33 years, and I'm an author, and uh, I enjoy teaching God's Word. That's really what I'm all about. I also enjoy exercising. I do a lot of bike riding, weightlifting, yoga. So that occupies a great deal of my time. And uh, Saul and I are friends. Uh, Saul uh, used to attend the church where I pastored. That's how I first met him. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much my story in a nutshell. Talking about COVID, Bruce, yesterday when we spoke, you had some concerns that you could have it, but you are waiting for test results for your wife, Carol. Can you tell us more on that? Yes, she was tested on Monday, and yesterday, Thursday, we found out that she had tested positive for COVID. So I had um, some symptoms not as bad as Carol's, but most likely I have COVID as well. So she's doing much worse than I am, but um, yeah, I probably have COVID and I'm gonna get tested within the next couple of days just to make sure, but yeah, COVID. Now, are you still serving a church there in California? Yes, I'm the interim pastor of a small uh, Christian and Missionary Alliance church in Roseville where I live. And um, really good people there. I've been enjoying that ministry, and we're trying to bring revitalization to the church. We are looking forward to reopening, and uh, it's been a very, uh, very good ministry for me. That's wonderful. I've been doing some uh, pulpit supply for a small church in uh, a neighboring community here, mm-hmm. and uh, the idea of reopening is exciting and in, and frightening at the same time. And it's just uh, it's amazing uh, what this virus has done to people. Who, you, know, you got those who just think there's nothing wrong, and then you got those who just are, you know, smart and stay in their homes. Could you give us a background of where you grew up? Yeah, I grew up in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That's where I was born and raised. And my dad was um, an insurance salesman. He did that pretty much forever. My mother was a housewife. Uh, Occasionally, she worked outside of the house. And I have a sister four years older than me. Uh, My story in in growing up is I am the product of a very dysfunctional family. I mean, if you want to rate dysfunctional families on a scale of one to 10, mine was probably a nine. Hmm. As far as dysfunction, one being healthy, 10 being completely messed up. Mine was about a nine. And uh, what was going on there was uh, my dad was an alcoholic and he never really made any money. 
we were a middle-class family, but I believe there were some years where I think we dipped like pretty much to the bottom of the middle class. And we, we may have even dipped below that. Uh, I, I really don't know. There was a lot of secretism going on about money in the home. Um, he was the classic example of a father who was there physically, but in every other capacity, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, he was checked out. Mm-hmm. He was off in his own little world. And uh, he would go out on his uh, calls to meet people to sell insurance to, and he'd stop at the tavern, have a few beers or shots, whatever. And he would pretty much do that throughout the day. Mm. Uh, my mother was, uh, I think she, you could say she had a mental illness. She suffered from extreme anxiety. And she was what you call a catastrophic thinker. In other words, mm. Anything that happened, she always saw the worst possible scenario, the worst possible outcome. And she would drive everybody within a one mile radius of her right up the wall. (laughs) Uh, Because her anxiety was just so severe. What was going on there, the dynamic that was going on there in the house was my mother feared that I was going to turn out like my dad. So at a very early age, she began to punish me for his sins. So what it looked like was when my dad would come home and he was drunk, uh, there would be the initial initial clash between my mom and dad, and their names were Marge and Bill. So they'd have their initial clash, and Bill would deny it, and then he would go upstairs and maybe sleep it off or just whatever. And then at some point she would take me and she would scold me. Mm. You make sure that you never, ever drink like that. You make sure you never do that. So I grew up with that ever since I was just a little kid. And she had this irrational, paranoid fear that I would become him. And constantly there were, there was no money in the home. So that was another lecture that I always got. You have to get a good job. You have to work hard. You have to on and on and on. So that's kind of what I grew up in. And it was the same thing for my sister. Same, same kind of a deal. Um, when I was in the summer of fourth grade, uh, in my mother's delusional thinking, catastrophic thinking, she decided that I was going to stay at my uncle's farm in Richfield, Wisconsin. She forced that on me. And I never wanted to go there. So I spent the summer of fourth, fifth, and sixth grade staying at my uncle's farm. And I helped them, you know, with whatever chores needed to be done. Now, there were no kids there. They didn't have any children. So there was nothing for me to do outside of the chores. He worked a second shift job at International Harvester. So, you know, he's, he was a hardworking man, gets up at the crack of dawn, works the farm, and then he um, takes a nap and goes into work second shift, comes home about midnight. So once he went to work, there's nothing to do out there. So I had to survive. That's, that's pretty much my story. I had to learn how to survive. I had to be an overcomer. I had to survive 
the dysfunctional mess. Uh, do you, by any chance, have any uh, any idea that led to your father's depression? Um, I think I think uh, both my mother and father came out of very unhealthy backgrounds. And I think uh, part of my dad's problem was that he was rejected by his father. Um, there are stories, and I'm not sure what happened there. He had, he had two brothers and a sister. And during the war, he was able to get um, an exemption for um, his two others, uh, two other brothers such that they didn't have to go in the war because uh, his dad was the president of a foundry that made war equipment. So he was able to get them out. And for whatever reason, he wouldn't do that for my dad. So there was something going on there where he had something against my dad. And I think he suffered from, from rejection. I think that really affected him. Uh, and he carried that with him throughout his life. It was very obvious that there was something drastically wrong there. Um, my, my mother and father had a terrible marriage. I mean, they fought constantly. And it was the drinking, it was the lack of money. And I think my dad was just beaten down by, by my mother because, because of all of her issues. But as far as rejection is concerned, um, I felt that rejection from my mother because remember she was punishing me for his sins. Mm. And I think I came to a point where I saw through her dysfunction and I realized that I'm never going to gain her approval. And I'll tell you exactly when that happened. When I was a sophomore in high school, um, I had a parent-teacher conference with uh, my math teacher, a guidance counselor, and me and my mother. And in I, math was never a good subject for me. I was never good at it. So we go in there for that, that meeting. And the first thing that happens is the math teacher opens up his grade book. And keep in mind, this guy was stoic. This guy had no heart. He had no feelings. He was just a numbers guy. And so he began to read the grades. He says, Mrs. Guckelberg, these are your son's grades. And they were terrible, you know, 50, 30, 70, just, just terrible. My mother lost it. I am convinced that she had a nervous breakdown right there. She opened up her purse and grabbed her handkerchief and she started weeping. And the guidance counselor sitting right in front of her was shocked. His mouth opened up, his jaw hit, hit the desktop. And then she started yelling at me and screaming at me, Bruce, you're never gonna play football again if you don't get your grades better, blah, 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 blah. And when we walked out of that meeting, I remember her entire demeanor changed. And all of a sudden a smile went on her face and she started talking about what she was going to make me for dinner that night. And I just, I remember I walked away from her. I didn't respond to her. I walked away from her. And I knew at that moment that she was crazy. Mm -hmm. And I knew that if I was going to survive 
I had to keep her at bay Hmm. because she was emotionally a train wreck. And I realized that trying to gain anything from her was an attempt in futility because she was a normal, healthy person. So that was really um, a key moment in my life where I saw, I, I just saw with crystal clarity, her dysfunction just became larger than life. So as far as me trying to gain um, approval from her, forget it. There was, there was no need to do that. So I need to focus on myself and just being able to survive that dysfunctional situation. From my, on my mother's side, there was a brief period of time where her mother was institutionalized because of, um, I believe she had schizophrenia. And back in those days, they didn't um, have the same type of treatment and medication that they have today. So what happened was she was put in an institution. And for a short period of time, her, she and her siblings were put in an orphanage because um, there was no one to take care of the kids. And of course, her dad had to work. And that had a tremendous effect on her. And crazy enough, what they did was um, whenever, whenever we asked, what happened to your mother? Because I never saw her. I, I never knew she existed. Mm. And I remember one day I asked her, do you have a mother? I was a little kid. And she was shocked. And she said to me, why, she's dead. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay. All right, I get that. She's dead. All right. Well, years later, when I was a sophomore or junior in high school, I was at a family reunion. And she walks up to me and she says, Bruce, we found your grandmother. And I thought, what? I thought she was dead. She said, well, she's in a nursing home in nearby um, in one of the cities nearby. And she asked me, would you like to go see her? And I thought, what? Are you kidding? So that was the family secret. Uh, Their mother put in an institution, never said a word about it, never talked about it. And then one day she springs it on me and she wants me to go see her. I, I wouldn't do it. And I remember in the family, my dad, my sister, and I, not a word was ever said. Bruce, you were talking before about this situation with your uh, mother and your grandmother and uh, all of a sudden she's gone and you think she's dead and you find out she's not what there had to be something there that uh, the family had to hide from and and what was it they were hiding from I believe it was a deep sense of shame that they carried I think that all of my mother and her siblings they they felt they were, they were overridden with guilt and shame about their mother, because in those days, uh, mental illness is not understood the same way it is today. In fact, right. back in those days, it was demon, you know, demonized, it was shameful, and you just kind of forget about people like that. And that's pretty much what happened, but they always carried with them that deep sense of shame over what had happened so much so that they wanted to make it a secret, which is the worst thing that you can do Mm. because you keep something hidden. It begins to have power over you. 
when you expose exactly. it and you talk about it, you diffuse it. And so rather than doing the right thing and talking about it and exposing it and explaining it, um, it just developed more power within them. So they were overcome with, with guilt and shame, which is a very powerful emotion, harmful so, and powerful. So who was the one who really initiated the, the, the secrecy? Is that your mother? That I don't know. I, I really don't know. I think the kids probably all got together and they just decided, let's not talk about it. Mm. So what you know, advice do you hard. have? What advice do you have for families who are dealing with this and who might be even thinking of pursuing uh, mm. that road of hiding because it's shameful? What advice do you have for them? My advice would be this. Um, in, in all of the pastoral counseling I've done over the years with, with people who have had family issues that have kept a secret, and then you talk to the kids, everybody says the same thing. Well, why didn't you tell us that before? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's always the same thing. So what I would say is to any, any people about family secrets is I would get it out in the table lay it out there, talk about it, explain it as honestly as you can. And I think that's the best way to diffuse it. That's the best thing that you can do for your own mental health and, and keep an open dialogue. I think, um, you know, having a family meeting, one of the things, especially in this COVID time, maybe once a week, have a family meeting. Just sit there and talk to each other and, and talk about how you're feeling. Um, that's something that, that I think is lacking in our culture today. Expressing your emotions, telling, telling people how you feel. You know, when you're struggling, this is something my wife and I do. If I'm, uh, if I'm feeling anxiety, I'll just sit down and I'll tell Carol, I'm feeling really anxious today because I didn't get to go to the gym. Or I'm feeling, uh, I'm feeling like I didn't get enough done today. Just by expressing those things, you offload. And it's mm -hmm. therapeutic. I think that's a really good practice to start. Express yourself. Talk about your feelings. It's very healthy to do that. Yeah, mental health is a really serious issue. If you're listening to this and you're having some issues, please always seek for help. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not good to hide. It's not good to hide. It just becomes worse and worse. So it's important mm -hmm. to seek for help because there's a lot of help available. Sometimes you need to, you come to moments in life where you need to talk to somebody who can help you sort through issues. And uh, having someone like that in your life is a good thing, whether it's a pastor, a good friend, a counselor, all of those avenues are very important. Mm. So, Bruce, you talk about all these issues with your parents, and I'm beginning to wonder, how did they meet? <laughs> uh, I believe uh, that my mother was my dad's secretary when he lived in Michigan. And I, I, guess, uh, I guess they decided to get married. I guess that was it. That's really all I know. Hmm. 
Interesting. You're uh, you're you're even you were hidden from their their relationship was parts of the relationship were very secretive for a lengthy period of time. Then, yeah, there was a lot of mystery, um, a lot of mystery with them, and uh, what was another strange part of the d- dynamic that was going on between them <clears throat> was. My sister and I were always in the middle. What I mean by that is my mother was constantly bad-mouthing my father to us. Everything was his fault, everything. My dad was constantly blaming my mother for everything. Everything was her fault. So we were in the middle of this. And what my mother wanted from me and from Joanne was she wanted absolution from us. She wanted me and my sister to say, you're the best mom in the world, but it's dad's fault. So we completely absolve you of any wrongdoing. And that's what she was seeking, but she never got that. I would, I would never do that. My dad was just so far in denial and just out of touch with reality that he was oblivious to his own mess, dysfunction that he was in. So it was really, really a sick kind of thing. You know, one blames the other back and forth and we're in the middle trying to figure out what's going on here. Very unhealthy situation. Why was it important for your mom that you absolve her of her issues and what she's done to you? Well, that's part of her dysfunction. She had some need to make sure that it was all his fault. She had some need to, um, I think she was in need of approval from me and my sister because she probably never had that as a kid. So I think she wanted that from me and my sister and that, that's really all I can, can think of. She was a very needy person who required a lot of attention from other people. And my dad was not the kind of guy that gave that to her. He was just a loner, isolated, and he, they, they never had any intimacy. We never saw them uh, be affectionate to one another. Never happened. Well, I'm, I'm listening to your story here, uh... Bruce, and I'm thinking, here you are, uh, young, young, growing up under all these circumstances, and now you can look back and reflect. And I, I listen, I hear you saying, and it sounds like you're the parent. You were the parent growing up, telling them that they had to be good kids and good, good people, and that they were wonderful, and giving them the self-esteem that they lost by their family situations as they grew up. And that had to have been very difficult for you. Yeah, it it, def- <laughs> it definitely wasn't fun. Actually, my sister, which you just said, my sister was probably more the parent. Mm-hmm. I was. Um, my mother was living vicariously through my sister. No, no question. Um, and I think uh, with me, I was just the person that my mother vented on because she could not cope with my dad. So I was punished for his sins. But um, yeah, it was really difficult. The way I coped with 
with this whole mess was through sports. I had that outlet. And if that had not been there, I'm not sure what I would have done. But um, yeah, playing football in high school and then uh, studying martial arts when I was in my senior year in high school, that's really how I coped with everything. If I did not have that, I'm not sure what I would have done. And up to today, you, you have to do a lot of physical activity. So that has carried on. Oh, yeah. That has, that has been a consistent thing in my life. And uh, I realize how important that is to me for my mental health. So, Bruce, uh, many hospice chaplains go into homes and encounter this kind of dysfunction. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for them to navigate this kind of situation? Because you've lived through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's really, really difficult. Um, one thing that you have to do is empathize with people. Mm-hmm. Many people do not understand their own dysfunction. They, they don't get it. And you, you can't in one one simple meeting in a, in a 30 minute session or however long a meeting is that you have, you can't explain the whole thing and work them through all life issues. So in that moment, you have to give them a lot of empathy and be very compassionate with them. Um, because these are issues that people carry with them for their whole life and they may never come to resolution. For example, I am convinced that uh, throughout the whole time my mother was alive, we talked many, many, many times about the family dynamics. And my mother never had the capacity, the emotional wherewithal to be able to process it. She was never able to get it. And because of that, for me, that didn't exactly help me cope because she could never get it. She could never understand it. So I, again, I just had to say, okay, she doesn't get it. And there's only so much I can say. There's only so much I can do. Um, So that's very difficult. Uh, Helping people work through their issues is really hard. Mm. With that, we'll take a little break and then we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at NAMI.org. Well, we want to welcome back Bruce and uh, for all of his stories at this point, and we have a few more things that we'd like to cover. Uh, Bruce, you, you, you speak of your family life up to this point, and you know, we have not heard you speak anything of your faith or how you had any faith or where that came about. And I'm just curious where that, where that came into your life. Yeah, when, when uh, we were growing up, The one thing that our parents did do right was we attended a Presbyterian church. And after I got confirmed, which was somewhere in sixth or seventh grade, um, 
my parents gave us the option of going to church or not going to church. Now, um, I thought church was kind of a foolishness. I really didn't think I got anything out of it. And of course, I didn't see any fruit in my parents' life from going to church either. However, there were seeds that were planted in me from that. Mm -hmm. um, what happened was um, when I was about 24 years old, somewhere in there, I was... Uh, teaching martial arts. I own my own karate school. That's one of the sports that I was deeply into. And I came to a point in my life where everything kind of just fell apart. I was under the illusion that if I had my own karate school and uh, I made all the accomplishments that I wanted to make with that, I was under the illusion that I would be very, very content. And at, right at that time, I, I went through a breakup with the, with the girl that I was seeing. And I just realized that I was not content. I was not happy. I'd done all that work in, in training and in martial arts, and it just wasn't fulfilling. One night I was in my apartment all alone and I was just thinking, and I kept having these flashbacks from when I was a kid in the Presbyterian church. And in my mind's eye, I could see that pastor with his black gown standing behind the pulpit preaching. And I was, I was um, curious as to why these flashbacks were popping into my mind. And it just, it hit me like a ton of bricks that I missed the whole point of life, that namely, there is a real God out there. Mm -hmm. I realized that everything that I heard in Sunday school and everything he said was true. The only Bible verse that I remembered was John 3, 16. So at that point, I just said, okay, there it is. Uh, for now, and I'm going to live for you. I'm not going to live for me. And that was a complete change in my life. I felt like at that moment, a black cloud lifted off of me. And I felt like I finally figured it out. I finally had the answer. And so it wasn't about martial arts. It wasn't about sports. The whole thing was, you got to know God. So it wasn't long after that, that I, I stopped teaching martial arts because I really felt God called me out of that. I got involved in a church and right away, I felt the call of God on my life. In fact, the very same night that I became a Christian, again, in my mind's eye, I had this vision where I was standing in the street, looking through the glass windows of my karate school. And I could see myself taking my students through a workout. And then in the building right next to my karate school, I looked through the windows. I looked through the glass windows and I saw myself speaking to my students, but I was holding a book in my hand. So I knew at that moment that God was calling me to be a preacher. The book in my hand was the Bible. So it wasn't too long after that where it was very clear to me that God wanted me to stop teaching martial arts. And uh, I closed down my karate school. I got involved in church. And um, I, I was uh, in, in the singles ministry. I knew I was going to go to Bible seminary and so on. So that was a key thing in my life. But part of my, I should say, emotional healing was when I became a Christian, then I began to realize that in my upbringing, I did not know what a normal, healthy relationship was. 
because I never had that modeled for me. Right. So as I became a Christian and started reading scripture and just really getting into the Bible and being around other brothers and sisters in Christ, I began to really see how sick my upbringing was and how completely dysfunctional it was and how my the relationship that my mother and father had was just really warped and twisted. To, to come to those moments of self-discovery where you look back at your past and you learn from it. And let me also say this, I could have, I could have stayed trapped in a victim mentality. I could have uh, said, you know, I'm a victim of my parents. I'm a victim of my upbringing. But those, those thoughts don't serve you at all. I could have been filled with self-pity and, you know, said life gave me a bad deal, not my fault. I could have been filled with anger over what happened to me and so on and so forth. I, I could have gone down that direction, but I began to see that those thought processes do not serve you well. All they do is make you miserable. How did you overcome uh, the victim mentality? Of course, your spirituality, your faith uh, played a big part. Uh, mm -hmm. But what other resources were there available for you to overcome? Because you were a victim, and that's the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think th that passage in James where it says, consider it all joy, my brothers, you know, when you face trials of many kind, because trials test your faith and so on and so forth. But that part, consider it. What you have to do is whenever you go through a bad experience in life, regardless of what it is, you can be trapped in that negativity and you can just dwell on that. But you have to look at whatever circumstances you go through in life and you have to try to find something good in it, something that can be transformational. And so when I look at some of the things that I went through, I realized that there were some benefits that, that um, I experienced, and I have to think about those things. For example, um, one thing about me is I'm an overcomer. Uh, people tell me all the time, Bruce, you're an overachiever. And I think part of that is because of the background that I went through. I was in a position where I had to survive, where I had to figure out a way of excelling. And that stayed with me. And so I became an overachiever. I became a survivor. And that's something good. So I have to look at those experiences as bad as they may have been, but what was the bad and what was the good? Because there's always some something good that you can see in a situation, no matter how bad it is. Uh, strength of character that may have developed from that, uh, fortitude, resiliency, uh, like a, a never die attitude, never give up, never quit kind of an attitude that may come out of that. So I think that's what you have to do. You have to look for what, what good things come out of bad situations, and they are there. So Bruce, um, did you forgive your parents? 
I, I did, but if there could have been a resolution in this lifetime, and the thing with mostly my mother is I wish she would have had the capacity to be able to process everything that happened to her. And I wish she would have had the understanding of how her actions had affected me and my sister and so on. That never happened. Um, so that's okay. That's the way it is. And that's my life. Have I forgiven her? I believe I have forgiven her. Yep. And your dad? My dad, yep. Yep. You mentioned something. You said you, for you to overcome what you had to overcome, you had to be an overachiever. And those are extremely high standards. So when you're counseling somebody who is, who's gone through what you went through and they're not overachievers, what remedy do you give them to overcome this kind of situation? Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, not everybody is an overachiever. That's true. Uh, I think... I think it really all boils down to self-discovery and understanding. The, the things that happen to you is for, for a person to understand the dynamics in their family, what was going on. And sometimes that takes a lot of help. You, you need to do your own studying and reading. And sometimes you need to talk to people, a therapist or, or whatever. But, um, in my case, being an overachiever, that was part of my coping mechanism. Now, some people may be an underachiever because they're afraid they might fail. You know, and so it all it all depends on on how a person is wired. But I would have to say that the key thing in overcoming these things is self-discovery, understanding what happened to you. Coming out of that re ridiculously dysfunctional background. I became a Christian and through my influence, my mother and father became a Christian. My sister became a Christian. So when you look at that mess, God redeemed it. God still makes the plans. God redeemed it. Yes. He, he, me, I was the one who became, you know, the, the, the Christian, the pastor, and, and God used my influence, and he redeemed a mess. And that's what God does. Yep. Amen. Thank you very much, Bruce. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. That was Bruce Gagobak. Uh, thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.